Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. For over two weeks now, protests, strikes, and police repression have rocked Colombia. So far, as many as 47 protesters have been killed and over 160 have disappeared. The protests began in the Colombian city of Cali on April 28th in opposition to a new tax reform that would have increased taxes on ordinary citizens. The protests then spread throughout Colombia. The finance minister resigned, right-wing president Ivan Duque withdrew the tax law, and has now offered to meet with protest leaders. Joining me to help make sense of the situation in Colombia at the moment is Forrest Hilton. He is Associate Professor of Political Science at the National University of Medellin and author of the book Evil Hour in Colombia. Thanks for joining me, Forrest. It's nice to be here, Greg. So um, back in 2019, there were already quite a substantial protest against the neoliberal policies of President Ivan Duque. So this looks a bit like a repeat. Is it? And if uh, not, how is this uh, series of protests different? And is it a surprise or something that's been brewing for a while? So in 2019, um, there was the largest general strike in Colombia's contemporary history. Nothing like it had been seen since 1977, and kind of the way for that general strike had been paved by a student strike in 2018. And students negotiated um, a series of agreements with the Colombian government, as other sectors had done. Um, and in 2019, students in the streets again, and a whole range of other groups, uh, indigenous, Afro-Colombian, um, feminist uh, trade union, um, retired people's associations. Um, and so it was really massive in 2019. And it started in late November, went on in part of December, and then was set to resume in March of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. So obviously what's intervened between now and then is the pandemic itself, and that has increased poverty in Colombia by officially by 7% and probably more. And um, overall in the country is, is officially at 42 and a half percent. Something like 50 to 60% of Colombians don't have jobs in the formal economy and they scrape together living as best they can in the informal economy as it's called. And so, you know, the, the vast majority of Colombians live in very precarious circumstances. 64% of the of the economically active population uh, lives on minimum wage or less. So a regressive tax measure that would uh, raise taxes by 19% on utilities, that's water, gas, and electricity, as well as a whole range of basic staples, um, affects people directly and immediately in ways they absolutely cannot afford. Um, so that explains um, kind of the massive response, and we're adding that in 2019, uh, it was also proposed tax reforms that, that triggered the mobilization and indeed, in 2019, a whole of tax breaks and exemptions were given to mining and energy companies, uh, as well as the banking sector. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the Colombian government is right now. 
is that you know the, the actors in Colombian society that concentrate uh, the vast uh, amount of capital um, don't really pay taxes; they get exemptions. Um, so I suppose it, it's not surprising that people came out in force uh, to repeal this this regressive tax package. The scale, however, I think took everyone by surprise because it goes far beyond what we saw in 2019, not necessarily in terms of groups or, or sectors that are mobilized. I think it's pretty much the same, mostly the same cast of characters from 2019, but the scale of it is just much broader. I think it's possible that um, this has resonated even more with the and unorganized working class in Colombia. Only 4% of Colombians belong to trade unions, I think 4, 4.5%. So, um, you know, trade unionism has been decimated by Leo as well as state and parastate terror, um, you know, of the sort that's being unleashed against um, demonstrators today. What's surprising, perhaps, this level of repression in the cities and people um, in the cities, because social movement leaders in Colombia, uh, you know, are murdered uh, on average, you know, once every couple days, and that, and the wake of uh, peace accords that were signed by the Colombian government in late 2016. So, outside of the Anybody who's involved in social movement activity or trade union activity um, can very quickly become a military, police, or, or paramilitary target. And it's not always clear, you know, who's who or how to distinguish between state and parastate forces. But what's surprising about this is the level of repression unleashed in the cities on these unarmed young demonstrators. Um, because of neoliberal education reforms, higher education now is much more widespread than it used to be. And it, it would be a mistake to consider universities as a kind of privileged group. Even middle-class university students um, face precarity in the job market and middle-class families are barely kind of making it. Um, and, and below them, of course, majority of the population which is poor. Um, so I think, you know, you, you, you look at despair uh, that, that, and, and poverty and inequality. Colombia is one of the most unequal countries in Latin America, which is the most unequal region in the entire world. And, you know, there's more than sufficient reason to get out in the streets and protest. Okay, now you mentioned the university students were involved. I'm just wondering who else is involved. And now that the tax reform has been withdrawn, what um, what are the demands? Okay, so <clears throat> the the groups that are involved, the National Strike Committee um, has representatives from a number of different movements, but the the strike for April 28th. Um, was called by the three trade union centrals in Colombia, as well as the teachers union. And, um, you know, in terms of 
people out into the streets, particularly the city streets, the student movement is the movement that can get uh, enough people on a city, and that's what they were doing in 2018, 2019. Um, but also uh, the Minga Indigena, which is to say the mobilization of uh, NASA people from Kauka in the southwest um, from their uh, the rural areas in which they live to the city of Cali, um, and then indigenous groups throughout Colombia also mobilizing and and uh, striking and and setting up roadblocks. Um, Afro-Colombians uh, mobilized all up and down the Pacific coast, and a lot of their demands have to do with fishing rights um, and and sort of the legal framework around fishing rights. Um, uh, rural workers and peasants, small and medium producers mobilized throughout the countryside. So it wasn't only an urban uh, strike, it was also rural. The Colombian population lives in the cities. And so in addition to those groups, um, retired people's associations, um, uh, both unionized and non-unionized healthcare workers, um, the feminist movement, um, I think uh, LGBTQ plus as well. Um, and now many of these people voted for Gustavo Petro in 2020, uh, sorry, 2018. And, um, you know, so far, Gustavo Petro is the leading candidate ahead of the 2022 elections. Um, and, you know, it's to be expected that most of those groups would vote for him again. Um, so uh, the government's tried, of course, to blame these protests on Petro. And Petro has sort of kept his distance and has actually called for kind of pulling back um, from the blockades and, uh, and the strikes. Um, and so we can see that the kind of formal political leadership of the Colombian left um, is, you know, not really in charge of or out front by any means, um, that there's so many groups, sectors, and regions involved that it's hard to see really much of a, a national kind of centralized leadership. This is really remarkably decentralized. Um, and in terms of demands, uh, I've named a couple, but um, I'm going to quickly run through these demands because they're pretty extensive. And this was the case with the National Strike Committee um, and the demands that it was negotiating with the Colombian government at the end of 2019, and then was planning to negotiate in 2020 when the pandemic hit. So implementation of the peace accords that were signed between the Colombian government and FARC rebels at the end of the, uh, 2016, the peace accords have not been honored or implemented. They have essentially been profaned and destroyed in the time that Ivan Duque has been president. He uh, won the election in 2018, um, in which Gustavo Petro won 42% of the vote. Um, so it was hardly an overwhelming victory, and the left, um, you know, made a very, very solid showing in 2018. And since then, the peace accords have just, um, you know, been um, been destroyed. And, and when I say been destroyed, uh, you know, hundreds of FARC 
as FARC soldiers and mid-level commanders have been murdered, uh, mostly extrajudicially and with total impunity. So that's what I mean when I say that the peace courts have been mostly destroyed and profaned. Um, corruption and, and um, sort of scandal after scandal have also characterized this government of the main demands to actually try to deal with corruption. Um, the dismantling of the riot police who've been responsible for the deaths of uh, any number of young people um, in 2019 and then, you know, even more so now. Um, student demands for uh, significant funding for higher education, which they won on paper in their negotiations with the government in 2019, but you know uh, that has yet to materialize in in any way that that they consider um, sufficient, and also demand for uh, free public higher education for all as a result of the pandemic, um, and that has been formally announced by the government um, as something that it's willing to do, but as is the devil's in the details, so. We'll see yep. if the government is willing to pony up the money to allow uh, free public higher education for everybody in the bottom half of the population. That's what it's promised. Um, there's call for progressive tax reform instead of regressive tax reform. Um, progressive health care reform. The, the health care system was, was largely privatized in the early 90s on the U.S. model. And... Um, one of the regressive measures that the government had on the table that has just uh, fallen by the wayside as of today was uh, health care reform, but sort of deepening the neoliberal model rather than reversing it. So um, health care has been one of the important demands of the student movement and one of the ways that the student movement has made bridges to other sectors in society. Uh, another demand concerns the murder of social movement leaders um, in the countryside. And I believe that something like a thousand of them have been murdered since the signing of the accords at the end of 2016. And again, that takes place with almost complete impunity. Um, the killers are, are, are almost never found, not generally brought to justice. Um, and then there's a call for gender equality, which is actually stipulated in the 1991 Constitution, but of course it's honored in the breach. And since the pandemic hit, poverty among women, I understand, is up by fully 20%. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of uh, households that are run by single mothers. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that the majority of them are, are deeper in poverty than they were uh, a year and a half ago. Um, so, then the government also wants to issue uh, in regressive pension reform, and protesters are calling for progressive pension reform rather than and implementation laws regarding um, environmental contamination, the kind of ecological component to the demands. Um, participatory budget. People want to say in what you know government spending is going to be on and. You know, government spending in Colombia is incredibly bloated when it comes to the military and the police. And, uh, you know, there's almost no popular input into 
government budgeting. So people want to say in, in how the government spends tax monies. Um, another thing the government plans to do is introduce, let me repeat that. Another thing that the government plans to do is introduce regressive uh, labor law reform. And again, protests are calling for regressive labor law reform. Um, one of the reasons why unionization is so low in Colombia is that there's a whole series of sort of legal obstacles to forming new unions. Um, and then finally, there's a demand to reorganize the armed forces, which tripled in size, uh, I believe, when Alvaro Uribe was president from 2002 to 2010, again, with uh, the full backing of the United States which um, sponsored the kind of military and police buildup in Colombia through Plan Colombia, 80% uh, of which roughly was, was um, earmarked for police and the military in Colombia. Um, so protesters are calling for a complete reorganization of the armed forces, and of course they would like to take money away from the armed forces in order to uh, devote um, to Healthcare, education, and other kinds of social spending. And, you know, ultimately, I think beyond that long list of demands, the, the neoliberal model in Colombia is really being called into question. And what the led by Gustavo Petro is offering is a fairly moderate form of social democracy. And if you look at most of the protesters' demands, um, they would be satisfied with, you know, the building of some kind of liberal welfare state in which the rule of law operated. Um, you know, there's a small sector that would like to see much more radical transformations in Colombian political economy and society, but that's probably a, a fairly small minority of those who are out protesting and demonstrating. So people are putting their lives on the line uh, and getting murdered by the dozens just in order to be able to have a state in which the rule of law exists and in which, you know, some kind of minimum uh, margin of survival is, is a possibility for the majority. Right now, it's not. Hmm. Now, this does seem like an extremely extensive uh, list of demands. And as you said, it's uh, questioning basically the fundamental principles of neoliberalism in Colombia as it has been instituted for so long. I just want to ask you about uh, kind of the, the larger context in which this is happening. And you mentioned the peace accords and the lack of the uh, government's uh, uh, holding uh, or uh, fulfilling those accords and also accords with other sectors of society. Now, one of the things, of course, one of the interpretations that have usually been made of Colombia is that um, the conservative bent of the governments and the relative difficulty of uh, progressive forces has been due to the fact that Colombia has been uh, under a state of uh, civil war essentially until the uh, peace accords were signed, which uh, basically made it easy for the uh, right-wing governments to marginalize the, uh, the uh, progressive or left factions that are not involved in, in, um, in, the, in the armed rebellion. So I'm just wondering now that the peace accords was signed, even though it's not been upheld, 
do you think that's the reason or part of the reason that the um, that uh, that this has been able? I mean, of course, there's this building of pressure too, I presume. But uh, but now there's so to speak a political opening that didn't exist before. So I think I think yes, I think that's the case. But I think in in large measure, students kind of force that opening. Um, so. You know, the mass mobilization in 2018 and then again in 2019, which became a general strike. And in both of those strikes um, in 2018 and 2019, the government strategy was to try to portray, um, you know, student mobilization and youth mobilization as infiltrated by kind of remnants of the FARC. Uh, which are still around, but they tend to be pretty far from the major cities and, and for the most part can be found in kind of far-flung border areas and, and agrarian frontiers. But nevertheless, um, you know, the Colombian government script for 50 to 60 years was always that any student protest was, was secretly being run, you know, by the guerrilla and was part of a, a, a gigantic communist conspiracy. And the reality has changed as a result of the signing of the peace accords. And the FARC, it must be said, upheld their end of those accords and they complied with the accords. Um, and then, you know, as many predicted, um, you know, were, were, were murdered extrajudicially for their trouble. So that's a reality that's pretty widely known in Colombia at this point. And, you know, the ELN um, guerrilla insurgency still exists, but again, found kind of in 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 border and areas, and and don't have a very widespread presence uh, throughout the country. So, on the face of it, it's implausible that any of the remnants of the FARC or the ELN could be leading something so massive, and the government has had a lot of trouble selling that narrative. Um, to to Colombian citizens who, you know, weren't born yesterday. And so um, I think the signing of the peace accords is really important insofar as urban protest has emerged on a massive scale and every effort made by the government to kind of um, affix the, the, the label of vandals or, um, you know, subversives uh, uh, on failed. And that's in part because students have done an incredible job uh, of contesting that narrative in the Colombian media. And, um, you know, of course, social media, but the actual media itself, I mean, student leaders have been um, on radio and television and writing opinion columns. And, and, you know, some student leaders even, be, even became minor political celebrities in Colombia as a result of their media exposure. So I think students conquered a great deal of legitimacy for their demands around education and health care. And, you know, it didn't require a lot of political pedagogy with ordinary people in order to convince those people that tax measure was going to be really, really bad for them. Um, so I think, you know, the government really itself any favors uh, in terms of kind of 
expanding the ranks of protesters and demonstrators. And, you know, the more that it insists that, you know, vandals or guerrilla uh, are behind this, um, the less credible that seems because the marches and the protests can, um, the, the participation of cultural workers, artists, musicians, actors, dancers, uh, you know, theater people and so forth is, has been sustained and remarkable. And during the daytime, a lot of these protests have a kind of carnival-like feeling to them. And, you know, um, they're attractive to people of all walks of life who are in a situation to, to, to go out and, and participate. And, and so it's not, you know, something that's strictly uh, for the youth or strictly university students because, you know, all of these um, proposed measures by the government affect the bulk of the population. So I think this, this long term kind of freeze um, on, you know, mass urban protest, that, 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 that freeze ended several years ago. And now what we're seeing is, a, is an unbelievable outpouring and flowering of urban protest of the sort that you know we saw we've seen in chile um so uh that hasn't stopped the government from sort of continuing um to to infiltrate demonstrations with um you know plainclothes uh policemen in one case or coordinating with uh armed civilians to fire on indigenous demonstrators in another case, but um, the the sort of political battle for hearts and minds, if you like, is definitely being lost by the Colombian government. Now, if the protests continue, I mean, it's been more than two weeks of uh, complete general strike with every major city in the country paralyzed. The government's trying to negotiate by sector or by region in hopes of dividing the popular movement, but it's not clear that the popular movement is really united enough for that to work anyway. Um, but it's it's certainly possible that as these protests and um, food and fuel become scarce in a number of regions and localities throughout the country, that people will say, "Okay, we understand these are these. It's a just cause and." You know, the government had no cause to, to murder dozens of people, um, you know, who were unarmed. But, you know, what are we going to do? We can't keep this up forever. And, you know, we need to get foodstuffs moving again. And, of course, there's really strong pressure from the, the business associations um, to and, and, and um, you know, transport sectors and so forth to get everything moving again economically. And, and so it's, it's, it's not hard to imagine that people who are on the bare margins of survival will feel that they really just don't have the, the wherewithal to continue this strike indefinitely. Um, and so kind of the question of, okay, what's the end game here or, or how does this end? You know, I have only to list all of the demands that are on the table it's immediately apparent. Well, that could never be negotiated. I mean, it, it's too extensive. 
um, you know, the government is destructionist. And so far, the government has not even engaged in any kind of serious negotiations with the National Strike Committee that has this list of demands, which are supposed to be representative. And at the same time, there's a lot of questioning of existing um, political representation on the National Strike Committee. Well, how representative is it, even if they were to agreement with the government, would that be accepted by um, as legitimate? So there's there's a lot of questions about, okay, well, how, how does this end and what might a successful end to this look like? Um, they've already knocked down the health care reform, the tax reform, the most, um, one of the most corrupt and really cynical and, and fairly sinister uh, officials in recent Colombian history, who was that finance minister, Alberto Carrasquilla, that's all been accomplished. And the government has declared um, that tuition will be free for the bottom half of the population in public universities. Again, devil's in the details, but nevertheless, uh, in these two weeks of protest, um, you know, movements have, have made victories, of, have claimed victories of sorts but in a way, they're kind of negative victories. And, and the points that I've listed, this extensive agenda, obviously would, would uh, be positive in terms of actual proposals. But then, you know, each one of them would have to be endlessly negotiated, debated, and then presumably submitted to Congress. So it's really not clear. Well, it definitely seems like a huge moment in Colombia at the moment. And of course, you know, these kinds of situations are very difficult to predict how things are going to go. So we'll definitely keep an eye on it as the situation develops. Um, but it's it's really quite a quite a moment. So but we'll leave it there for now. I was speaking to associate uh, to Forrest Hilton, associate professor of political science at National University of Medellin. Uh, thanks again, Forrest, for having joined me today. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Greg. And thanks to our viewers and listeners for joining the analysis.news. Please don't forget to head to our website and make a donation there so we can continue to provide the programming such as this. Thank you.